Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipperer, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and Michelle's co-host here at the club, or virtually here at the club. We hope you are staying safe and are well wherever you are, and we look forward to seeing you again in person someday in the future at the club's headquarters in San Francisco. Until that happens, we are doing all of our programming online. This, in fact, is the latest in more than 250 online programs the club has produced just in the past six months. You can find all of our upcoming programs, as well as audio and video from our past programs, as well as how you can support our program production at commonwealthclub.org. Now, if you are watching us live on YouTube or Facebook, you can use the chat function, post some questions. We can work them into our discussion today with our special guest, and uh, we will get started in just a moment. But first, I have to introduce Michelle Miao. She's the member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors and the host of The Michelle Miao Show. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to all of you for joining us. And thank you to the Commonwealth Club for providing a platform for us to have these important conversations. A recent draft report by Michael E. Horowitz was discussed in an article by the New York Times in which it pointed to top DOJ officials, such as then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions and then- Attorney, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who were the driving force behind uh, President Trump's zero tolerance policy. And so if you'll remember, the zero tolerance policy resulted in thousands of migrant children being separated by their families. Um, I've, I was following you know, the news during that time, and I personally cannot get rid of the image of children crammed into detention centers and cages with sleeping on mats with nothing but a solar blanket uh, covering them. And I could not even, in my mind, even understand, you know, what kind of a public uh, health concern or crisis that would be. Now imagine what the rest of our migrant communities might have been facing and how it may have impacted other vulnerable communities, such as LGBTQI people seeking asylum. Our guest today volunteered in Tijuana, Mexico, with two organizations, Transgender Law Center and El Otro Lado. He's a law student, an award-winning writer, uh, and located in New Orleans. They have a bachelor degree focused on English literature and gender and women's studies from the University of California, uh, Berkeley. Uh, Julie is an ambassador for the CDC program, Let's Stop HIV Together, and is student liaison for the American Bar Association's health law section and also a writer for thebody.com. So let's welcome Julie Alvarenga to the program. Julie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, such a, you know, it's timely that the, the article came out in that way. I think many of those who were doing the work probably knew, you know, who was the driving force behind the zero tolerance policy. I think that it would be great for, for a lot of folks who are tuning in today to understand, you know, even the context of uh, migration from Central America. We'll start with your story in your own you know, family story of migrating to the United States. Yes, definitely. Thank you. So, yeah, my family is from El Salvador, and um, they migrated here in like the late 80s and 90s during the Civil War, which ended in 91. And this um, definitely took a toll on, on families, and, and many people had to, you know, force migration into the United States, among other countries like Canada, and, and places like in Australia. And so 
you see the Salvadoran diaspora is is pretty spread out, you know, and 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 a lot of that had to do with with the difficulty of living in in a country that was um, torn apart by war, and not just any war, but a civil war which divided the people, um, a civil war that was also um, where the U.S. also played a, a, a role, you know, with U.S. policies, which is nothing new. We, we, we see that right now currently with what's happening in Honduras. And, and that's exactly why there's been a huge wave of migration specifically from places in Honduras, like these caravans that are making their way through. Um, I, I also, uh, so just, just to be on topic, um, our family migrated to Los Angeles, specifically Lincoln Heights area, Koreatown, which is where a lot of my family still stays. And, um, and that's been sort of like our, our lived experience, you know? And so now that I'm doing this work as a law student and, and having also organized in Los Angeles with the Central American Resource Center and, and, and also um, collaborated with, with firms that do pro bono work like Munger, Tolson, Olson, I've seen this um, full circle basically, in terms of how that was my, you know, I'm a child of the diaspora, you know, I'm, I'm here because of, a, of what happened in, in the 80s and 90s. And now as an adult, you know, I'm, I'm witnessing this once again, and in a, in a professional trajectory. And but I can't help but also um, make it personal, too, because this is very much embedded in my family's lived experience. You, you've written that uh, you learned a lot about your family's background and, and El Salvador, uh, its history and its culture and all that from your family, of course, here and, and other uh, migrants. Um, is the El Salvadoran community in the U.S. well-connected and, and, and you know, networking? Um, or is it, you, you mentioned that being spread out, so, I, you know, or is it maybe too far apart that across the country that you don't have those connections? Before I answer that question, I just want to clarify that we identify as Salvadoran, so you don't have to add the El Salvadoran to that. Um, that's just something that a lot of people get confused with. And so I'm just kind of like, also, I just want to like, um, check, check that. But, um, yeah, the Salvadoran community, I would say, at least from like the perspective on my families, they, they were pretty, they, they were very strongly knit. Like my dad's side of the family is from a town called Ciudad Arce, which is like the name of the, of the town. And it's really close proximity to the capital, San Salvador. And so a lot of family friends and, and cousins, because my dad's side, uh, the Alvarenga family is a big family in El Salvador, um, they all had a plan. You know, they, 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 they really did have like a tight community and, and they chose Los Angeles as, as, as a way of like, uh, as a way of like making it their second home. And so with that came a lot of like networking within like the family and friends in the community and, and really um, supporting one another because I always tell people that my mom and my dad have two different lived experiences, even though they're from the same country. My mother, she grew up middle class. She went to private school her whole life, Catholic private school. Um, her family hasn't, they haven't, they have a back, they have, they're educated. They like my great uncle, he was a professor at the University of Central America, which is a Jesuit university. Um, and so there's just, even in such a small country, you notice how different people's lives can be. And so, you know, my mother, she came in a visa. She had the opportunity, she had the privilege to come in, in, through a with a visa and later, you know, filed for some form of status. 
However, my, my dad's family was definitely uh, in poverty and, and you can understand why um, family and community is so important because you need to support one another to get through these, these ordeals. You know, I remember stories from my, um, my aunt, mi tia Tita, telling me how um, they used to hide from, they didn't know who was there, who, who they were hiding from, whether it was the FMLN or, or the government, because they didn't have the luxury to choose a side. They just wanted to make sure that they were safe and that they hid when their parents were out in the farms, you know, working, you know? And so my tia Tita, who was the oldest, one of the oldest, she's the second oldest, I should say, she took care of a lot of like, like the, the siblings. And my dad is one of the younger ones. He's like the second youngest one. And so he, he experienced that kind of, that was his lived experience in, in his home country. And so um, networking and, 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 and supporting one another was really huge, especially on his end and, and the family and friends that, that they knew. So little by little, when they needed to migrate, you know, they started to trickle over to Los Angeles and it became a, a pipeline of support from one another. And this is, you know, this is not organizing. This is not a work. This is just them, you know, trying to survive. And they did, you know, and, and, and now the good thing is that over these next the years, you know, like they, they built my grandparents a home, you know, because my grandparents would eventually like travel to the U.S. and then as, with a visa and then come back. And so little by little, you got to see how community and family played a role. You know, now they have like a beautiful house and they have their evangelical. And so they have a church there as well. My grandfather passed away a few years ago, but my grandmother is still alive and, and she lives in that home. And it's all been because of like the family support. You know, my father was very adamant about always sending money back to El Salvador to support his family. Julie, thank you so much for sharing your personal family migration story. And it's one of... My father was very adamant about always sending money back to El Salvador to support his family. Julie, thank you so much for sharing your personal family migration story. And it's one of of many, you know, thousands of uh, stories in which I feel like this administration has stolen the narrative of the actual true migration, you know, stories of countless families. Um, And what I mean by that is this narrative that those who are seeking asylum or who are migrants coming from Central America uh, are escaping, or not escaping, but they themselves are part of, uh, you know, criminal activity of some sort. So, you know, um, whether that's just to, to come and break immigration laws of the United States or that you know, the, the countries have their problems and the countries are not taking care of their problems. But what people don't understand is what you've just demonstrated here for us is that it's been decades of issues involving U.S. policies that have created, you know, have added, contributed to the migration. And so I really wanted a moment for us to highlight that so people understand you know, and especially as we get near election and immigration is a hot topic. Um, any, any more you want to add to making sure people, you know, understand the right narrative in terms of migration from Central America? Yes, I, I really want to stress that both administrations, both parties have been very unkind to migrants. You know, like there, I, I, there's like this, I think the Statue of Liberty, right, says, bring me your tired, your, 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 your old and everything. And that's not what the Obama administration did either. 
I really just want to clarify that the Obama administration also had children sleeping on the floor with um, those aluminum um, sheets. And, um, and I know this because I was working with the Central American Resource Center at that time. I'm, ve- I'm, I'm in law school now, but I'm fairly seasoned. Um, I, and I took like a few years to really decide what I wanted to do before I jumped into law school. And so after I had graduated from Berkeley, I moved back to Los Angeles and I started to work with the Central American Resource Center there because the Office of Refugee and Resettlement had just opened their, um, like, just had just started to get funding to work with unaccompanied minors. And so I will say, though, that the Obama administration is doing a, did definitely a better job than what's happening right now. I just really want to, like, clarify and debunk any myths because we, we have such a terrible person in office right now. But people forget that people have done terrible things in the past. And so I just it's, it's really just about critical analysis. And so I wanted to bring that up. But, um, yeah, the Office of Refugee and Resettlement started to work with unaccompanied minors back in 2014 after a lot of these photos um, leaked that children were in cages. And um, we, we started to help, you know, get them their special immigrant juvenile visas. Basically, what ended up happening there is that if they were unaccompanied and they, and they presented themselves at the border and they were in one of those, um, those ORR camps where they have minors, then they get, um, they get put in the system, they get an A number, and then they are sent um, out into the U.S. with a family member or a friend. Now, that's in theory, right? Sometimes I'm sure there are situations that were very sticky, and, and there were definitely cases on our end where we had to deal with things. Um, but just to describe the pipeline of that, once they were with the family member and they were going to immigration court, specifically in Los Angeles, and they we were filing for their juvenile visas, then they would be able to qualify for their LPR, which is legal permanent residency status. And, and you know, kind of like from then on, move forward into their like their naturalization. So that that's kind of where I jumped into immigration, uh, you know, as as a paralegal at that time. Um, And so it's really interesting to compare both administrations and see the differences and and what's happening, you know, um, as as we move forward with hopefully another president. We've talked um, about, Michelle and I on, on the show in the past have talked about, of course, you know, Obama's reputation as, you know, the, the chief uh, deporter or deporter in chief. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I, Michelle mentioned Jeff Sessions uh, being quoted in that thing about how, you know, we need to take the children away. There was a, a, an interview on the Bulwark podcast a couple of weeks ago um, in which a former Trump administration official is relating how when they were talking about like building the wall and such, Donald Trump wanted there to be like spikes on the top of the wall. He specifically apparently was talking about how great it would be if these spikes would be like going through the arms and the hands of the people who were trying to climb over. Um, you know, I mean, the pain was the point, you know, he, he this was, it, it kind of takes out any possible, uh, uh, amelioration of, of their current policies because you realize, no, this is not just them getting tough and trying to cut down numbers of immigrants. This was right from the top, a genuine attempt to inflict pain on, you know, the most marginalized people. This man is sick. Um, and like, honestly, um, sometimes when people are voting, they forget just how much power the executive branch has over agencies like DHS, ICE, 
the FBI, et cetera, you know, these agencies, obviously like there's like uh, checks and balance and that really depends on statutes that are implemented by Congress and everything. But the president has a lot of power to hire and fire people, which is why, and these agencies are what makes the country move. You know, we're seeing this right now, just within this immigration perspective, but even with the CDC, you can see how much the culture has changed the language that gets changed in some of these um, platforms, depending on who is president. That is all really important to, to think about when we're voting someone in. And um, I, I was going somewhere with this. You had mentioned his, his rhetoric, how he wants to like put spikes up on this wall. And he doesn't care that he's plowing through the San Pedro River in Arizona. He doesn't care that he's violating a lot of like um, environmental protection laws. He, he doesn't care. He doesn't care that he's violating... Um, indigenous laws that have been passed. And um, and there's just so much that's interconnected with immigration. It's not a one single issue. And um, it's really important that people do their research so that they understand. I remember I was in Tijuana in November of 2018. And you can probably remember these graphic images of U.S. agents tear gassing into Tijuana. And there's like a photo that specifically shows a mother with two children as she's running away from the gas, the tear gas that they're doing. I was there that day. I was literally there at the office with al otro lado, less than a mile away on their fourth floor. And we were like right outside the, 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 the roof witnessing this happen and just swarms of people running back into Tijuana because these helicopters were shooting into Mexico, into another country. So that speaks volumes of the violations that this administration has done. They don't care. They really are ruthless. And, and, and it's, really, um, it's really important to not forget these things because we, we tend to live in a state of historic amnesia where we process so much every day on social media and the news and everything is just so, um, it, it's so dra- dramatized that we forget the, the, the importance of, of what happened on these dates. And so I like to remind people that this happened in November of 2018. So it's about to be two years. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Sorry, John, go ahead. Well, no, this this could have waited. I was just going to say, were you um, frustrated, annoyed at the fact that in last night's vice presidential debate, immigration really didn't come up. There was a bit of a kind of a drive by mention of it, but it really was not a topic, even though it's, it's such a hot button issue in this country. It is a hot button issue. And I mean, and Kamala Harris is not someone that's, has her hands clean on this either. Like she, she supports ICE very much and she's, you know, she's taken photos with border patrol agents and everything. And she's had a notoriously ruthless track record as a prosecutor. And so I, um, I, I just want to say that just to hold, just to hold a critical analysis of both ends, you know, because I am frustrated at the fact that this is what I have to work with. You know, I'm frustrated at the fact that this is like, like you even said, there was no conversation even around immigration, but we have um, thousands of people currently locked up and, and they're not, they're, they're, they're migrants, they're refugees. Then they're currently locked up during a pandemic. And um, I, I recently came out with a piece with thebody.com, which is uh, a platform that I write for that does a lot of HIV work. And we brought in a, an attorney who who was, who was once affiliated with the Southern Poverty Law Center, Jeremy Jong, who I actually met while I was volunteering in Tijuana. And he can also share just the experiences, the, 
the trauma, the 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 violations that the the health hazards that 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 occur in these facilities, and and I'm thinking about this, and I'm watching this debate last night, and I'm just thinking, are y'all not going to talk about the children and, and the families and the people with the pre-existing health conditions that are locked up in these places during a pandemic? I mean, y'all just are just here for your sound bites and for your witty clapbacks at each other, but people are literally dying as you have this debate. And it just makes me think you need to try a little harder. And 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 I and I and I'm voting for Biden, don't get me wrong, but I really want to hold them accountable to this because they 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 probably think that because Trump is this just I don't even have the words to describe just the trash that this man is. Um, they probably think that they have it in the bag, but no, hold yourselves accountable to your work. Like, and do not compare yourself to this administration because the bar is so low. There's no need. Really hold yourself to what you want to do around um, foreign policies, um, this pandemic, immigration. Um, you know, like yeah. we we yeah. and I, and just to kind of like explain a little bit more, like. Immigration, like right now, 44% of detained people in these facilities are Haitians. They're black migrants. So we see how these black um, communities are suffering both within the U.S. and, and, and like, you know, hovering over the border. And so it, it, it goes back to the fact that these issues are not one single issue. They're all correlated. They all have an intersection. Absolutely. And we'll talk a little later about, you know, your thoughts as a, a law student and, and very soon here in the near future will be an attorney and kind of your views on the laws and immigration laws and, and um, you know, what we mean when we're upholding laws. But what if the laws are violations of human rights? So we'll get to that. But I want to go back to your time um, when you spent, you know, the time spent with El Otorlado. And uh, I'm not sure if you, that was after the president had seized his zero tolerance policy or before, but wanted to get an idea of get some of the experiences uh, of what you witnessed. I think you had mentioned one example, the horrific um, tear gassing, you know, being shot, you know, to through Mexico. Um, But yeah, would love to hear more of kind of what you had witnessed and what the public health crisis might've looked like then. Yeah, definitely. So I, I, I've, I've continuously volunteered in, in Tijuana and, um, and like Mexicali since like 2018. And um, one of the, the, the organizations uh, apart from Al Otro Lado that I've worked with is Border Kindness. But I can't say that I've worked with them long enough to really say um, like what they're doing right now. I will emphasize, though, that people need to support this organization, Border Kindness because they are doing the same work that Al Otro Lado is doing, but on the other side, east of Baja California, like heading east, like towards that border of that state. And there's less resources there because Tijuana is, is a bigger city. And so there's more people, there's more, you know, resources and everything. And so I, I, I kind of wanted to also just throw that out there so that people who are watching this, if you would like to make a donation to Border Kindness, you can Google them. And, and you'll see the work that they're doing on that side of the border because every every border is different, right? We can talk about Juarez, El Paso border. We can talk about Tijuana, San Diego borders, et cetera. And it just, it all varies. You know, every border is different. And so that's just kind of like some 
some perspective that I've had, but most of my work over these last years has been in Tijuana. And um, you see how Tijuana is a, is a city of migrants, you know, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful city and it's a city that welcomes people for the most part. There was definitely some tension when Central Americans were coming through, but people right now are supporting each other. And it's, it's beautiful to witness that um, there is a huge Haitian community there as well. And you see the community, the Haitian community also working in tandem with folks from Tijuana and, and, and how there is that, that support. And, and, and that's something that I really admire about Tijuana because when people talk about Tijuana, they always say, oh, the dangers of the border town. Um, it's, it's a place where you can get away with anything you want. Um, there's just a lot of like, bad reputation that Tijuana carries. And, and I really want to like emphasize that it's, it's a beautiful city with beautiful people who share, who are literally just, you know, giving you the shirts off their back so that you have something to wear because their infrastructure is not that solid either. And so for, for them to, 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 to be able to, to help, to want to help, you know, and, and obviously I'm, I'm oversimplifying it because I'm not as involved with the, with the politics and the organizing that's taking place in, in Tijuana. But I will say that, that there is that, um, that, 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 that support, you know, for the most part. And it's what's made the work a lot more easier for El Otro Lado and for the Transgender Law Center, because you've seen how, like, this system, this grassroots system of shelters and organizations have all come together and created this network to, like, support a pipeline that can advocate for, for migrants coming through. And, and migrants not just from Central America, but migrants coming from, like, Eastern Africa, migrants coming from Haiti, migrants coming from all walks of life, because um, that's what we see a lot of the time. You you just, whenever I'm, I'm volunteering at Al Otro Lado, you just never know what language interpretation we're going to need. One, I, think, I believe one day we had, like, people that spoke like eight different languages or something. And so um, that just tells you kind of like the diversity in, in migration there. That Tijuana really is a city of migrants. Give us some, some idea of what your work there actually entails. I mean, are you helping people apply for, for asylum into the U.S.? Or are you also helping them mediate with any issues with the Mexican government? Um, I mean, what, what, what is kind of your typical workload there? So as a volunteer and as someone who's not a lawyer, I report to an attorney and I um, and we work together specifically on the migrant protection protocol, for example, which basically means like MPP is what it stands for. And so someone who is um, who is MPP means that they are, are are in Mexico, specifically, let's say Tijuana, for example, and they have their hearing with a judge, an immigration judge in a couple of weeks instead of staying inside a facility or being released into the U.S., they place them in Mexico in the meantime. And so we, I've re, the work, that's, that's actually really hard. Um, it's a hard situation because, for us as legal advocates because when we're trying to file their I-589, their asylum application, we, um, we don't know, really know what, what kind of, like the questions that they ask in that application are almost counterintuitive because they're not in the United States. And so we have to, we really have to follow the guidelines of the attorneys who are learning all of these new um, laws and policies as, as we speak, you know, every day it's something new. And so we're, we're guided by these attorneys como at El Otro Lado or the Transgender Law Center or um, 
sometimes carecen. The Central American Resource Center has come in. And there's so many other orgs like Chirla as well. Um, and I know that I'm missing definitely a few more, but these are some of the, the key players that I've collaborated with. Let's talk about your time in Tijuana uh, again this past summer, though. I mean, it very you you were down there at, during COVID nineteen um, yeah. and working with Transgender Law Center, and you know, let's talk about what it's like to be LGBTQIA or an HIV AIDS positive person, um, you know, seeking asylum. Because I think even answering that, people will get a better understanding of you know just how one, uh, sometimes dangerous, and two, why it's a public health concern. Most definitely. So you, so it was, it was really hard to be in Tijuana during a pandemic because, I mean, personally, also, like, I'm everyone's sheltered in place. I wasn't really, I was pretty much by myself there. I, I reported to an attorney, but it was all remote. Um, and thankfully, like, I had already made a solid network there that I can, like, rent a room and stay with people that are doing work there with shelters and have created programs like Food Not Bombs in Tijuana that supports community with, with food justice. And so even with that said, though, it was really hard to be there to witness like how how this pandemic is, is affecting people in different countries and specifically in countries where people are in transit. So you, you see how... Like, I remember sometimes I would go to the shelters to give, like, a, a little talk, a Know Your Rights talk. And we, and to be quite honest with you, the, the border is closed. No one can cross right now. So all we would tell people is, like, you got to wait it out because I'm hoping for the best in November, hoping things can change. But as of right now, there's nothing that you can do um, in terms of, like, presenting yourself, entering with inspection or without inspection, you know, and presenting yourself at the port of entry. And so that made it very difficult because that just means that people have to wait wait it out and and be careful, right? Because this pandemic is insidious. Like this virus can just get you and you don't, you know, you have to be careful. And and I want to say that Tijuana did practice safety protocols. Like they, um, they check your temperature when you enter a place. They made you step on a on a mat that's soaked with like um, disinfectant liquid of some sort, and um, they have you wear your mask at all times. Um, you have to like wash your hands. Like there's hand sanitizer there. So I think that people were were trying their best, you know, with the resources that are available to them. One thing that that I didn't do though while I was there was to get tested for COVID because I try to get tested regularly, especially since I'm going to school in person and, and I'm HIV positive. So I have a compromised immune system and I want to make sure that I, that, that I'm taking care of myself and that I, and that I get tested, you know? So that's important to me, but I, I it was hard for me to get tested while I was in, um, in Tijuana. Um, there was a place that I was told that I could go to and, and get tested. I, I, I didn't really try, but at the same time I was mostly like quarantined to myself and, and, um, and I was working, and so I would sometimes go to the, 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 the transgender law office. We have a little satellite office there. Or eventually I discovered this really cute cafe just down the street from where I was staying, and no one was there. So I would just stay there all every day and just study from, like, morning to afternoon or to evening. So I tried my best to, like, stay 
um, like have a physical distance and, and, and such. And so I, I, I didn't really try to get tested for COVID out there just because I, I, I thought that if I, I just didn't know what to think and I didn't, I didn't want to like, um, put myself maybe in a precarious situation or something. We, we've brought up the topic of the uh, detention camps, prisons, whatever we want to call them, where uh, these migrants are being held in the U.S., or some of them are. Um, and you mentioned, you know, during a time of a pandemic, what do we know about the situation within them regarding COVID? Are they being tested? Do they have any protocols? Are they being, you know, is, is there any protection that's being offered to these people? While they're detained? Um, that's a really good question. So a lot of the people that we worked with were, we're, we're in the Otay Mesa Detention Center, which is like across the border from Tijuana in San Diego. And they would tell us a lot of stories that like they weren't getting like soap to wash their hands. They were being like, like um, crowded in, in, a, in, a, in a pod, you know, like these like each each cell, I guess you could say, like four to a pod. Um, they wouldn't believe you if you thought that you had COVID symptoms, they, it, it, you would really have to like advocate for yourself consistently and, and almost aggressively in order for them to even pay attention to you. And by they, I'm also talking about like nurses and doctors in that, in, in those spaces. And so um, one of, thankfully, like the two clients that I worked with who were HIV positive or had a smoother transition out, but there were two clients that I also worked with who had COVID, who, and, and they were like, they were, um, they were quarantined and, um, and sort of like put in, in, the, in the cells where everyone who is, um, who had symptoms of COVID are placed. But again, not enough like health um, regulations to really make sure that they're safe. Because essentially what you, what you see here is what's happening in a lot of prisons as well. Like, Detention centers and prisons are owned by the same companies like Geo West, and they profit off people, and they don't care about people's health. And during this pandemic, to know that this is happening right now, and that over two hundred, like two hundred, over two hundred thousand people have died, you know, it, it's it's really unfortunate to know that that we have people incarcerated during a pandemic, and and not only incarcerated but violating human rights, violating their human rights, their, their personhood. Let's talk about um, you know, being LGBTQI and an asylum seeker and talking about some of the specific experiences or the, I should say, the intersectional experiences um, that we might not talk about or we might not hear about and, and how if we aren't supportive or there are no organizations like the Transgender Law Center out there doing the work in supporting LGBTQI asylum seekers that we're really failing, you know, a number of folks who are put in dangerous situations at times. And I know you mentioned, you know, a case that you were working on while you were down there um, in your article at thebody.com. So we'd love to hear you kind of summarize your thoughts uh, about that specific case and how it highlights the issues that impacts our community. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> um, I guess I can also start with how a lot of the times when we're at the border, we are um, we are like helping attorneys translate because a lot of the attorneys 
at the border don't speak Spanish and, and I'm, I'm a Spanish native speaker. And so interpreting and, and what that looks like, you know, in, in this work is really important, especially for folks who do um, justice language work. Um, it's not easy and it all depends on the on the situation. And so being doing this type of triage work and, and working with attorneys and other advocates has been interesting because you, um, for example, just to get some more perspective, um, a lot of the folks that were in some of these um, shelters or, 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 or places that were sponsored by, by organizations, we would start preparing them for their credible fear interview. And this is all before COVID, right? This was like 2018, 2019. Um, we were working with them on what to say when they had their interview with a border patrol agent who basically will ask them, do you fear for your life? Why are they attacking you? Who is attacking you? What happened, et cetera? Did you go to the police? These are all standard, standard questions that they ask people during this like credible fear interview. And we sort of prepare them not, not to say that they, don't know what they're what they're saying because they really do these are people that have experienced death you know and and many are advocates many are people that are organizers in places like honduras and 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 this is not about you know giving a voice to the voiceless because i don't want to follow that rhetoric that a lot of like people both white and brown saviors have you know because that's not what it is these are people who have organized in their countries and we're collaborating together. We are in a network together. And so this is all collaborative work. And so when we're, when we're working on how to like figure out these processes, these questions that they're being asked, um, a lot of the violence that you notice really is really intense and it's triggering, especially with, with the work that I did specifically with LGBT clients. You know, as, as someone who's also identifies as queer and gender non-binary, like I, I, I also, I felt like very, like that vicarious trauma that you, that you're translating and interpreting and, and, and reacting to in two different languages can be very intense. And, and, the, and some of the graphic um, situations that these clients have gone through, um, which I, I don't really want to repeat, but it's just very, very gruesome and violent. And you see how homophobic, transphobic slurs and, and the violence that happened while they were being thrown those slurs you realize just those how powerful those words can be because you finally have a mental image of what they went through as people were spatting those um, homophobic and transphobic slurs at them. And it's so violent that it's, it's ingrained in your head. So whenever you hear those words, you can't help but think about what was happening to them while they were shouting those words to them. And those are things that I wouldn't even want to repeat um, because it's that graphic. But yes, those are the things that sometimes you witness on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. I think we've got a couple questions from uh, uh, the audience. Thank you for sending them in. So if you have some, uh, continue to do so. We'll get them to Julie. Um, John, would you like for me to ask? I'll One of the questions is, what were, be it, say, the top three changes you would recommend to implement or change to improve the process? So to address the, these issues of specifically, you know, public health concern of immigration, what or do you have kind of some specific uh, steps you'd like to see changed? Oh, yeah. We need to abolish ICE. We need to abolish this system. We need to free everyone that's incarcerated. Like, we need to start there before anything. That's where we got to start. We got to abolish ICE. And it's, and it's been done. We see, we've seen a facility in Santa Ana in Southern California 
um, completely like, you know, be removed, you know, like we, we can do this. We can hold our, our, our city council members. We can hold our, 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 our representatives uh, accountable and have them demand them to remove any tie, like to like remove themselves of any ties with Geo West and all of these other private companies to remove ice from their cities. We can do this. We can mobilize and make this happen. And so we need to start there. And, I, and that's even before we get to two and three steps, two and three, like we just need to start with abolishing ice. I guess to add to that, is one of my questions. I mean, it's obvious whoever wins the election, you know, it doesn't, it's not just one person that's going to make this all better. Um, we start with abolishing ice, but many people kind of need some framework, if you will. Lots of people talk about, no, what we need is immigration, you know, reform. But let's say we do start with, with abolishing, you know, some of these, um, uh, departments, um, now, you know, what, what would be ideal if we were to look even start at step two? Yeah. Well, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And, and I also just want to reiterate that ICE is a baby monster. This happened post 9-11. This is very recent. These, these systems, these hegemonic institutions are fairly new. And people think that people, again, going back to this historic amnesia that people just forget, they don't read or they just forget the history of the violence in this country. They don't realize that these institutions are new and we can like completely eradicate them still. Like right now, right now, it's not like we're going to change the constitution or nothing. We're trying to stop agencies that have been killing children and people. And we can do that and we can learn from these mistakes and, and not enough time has happened. So we can still cor that, correct those wrongs. Now, in my opinion, and this is just coming from someone who is not a lawyer, who is a law student and has, I just want to reiterate that, has background in, in health as a writer, as a journalist, specifically on HIV, I, I would say that once we've completely eradicated ICE and we're trying to, like, bring people in for services, let's follow, like, a, a case management system, you know? Like, let's bring children, like, emergency medical once they've transitioned from like ORR into like their families. Um, but, and, and let's remove anything that's, that's affiliated with incarceration because we, this country loves to incarcerate people and it's just part of the, their agenda. And, and, and we need to start with, with, with dismantling that and breaking, de deconstructing our minds as to why we've normalized that for so long. So we definitely need to start there. Um, a lot of what I see with like defunding the police, um, abolitionist work, that is all tied to immigration. Just as we need to abolish ICE, we need to understand the problems with mass incarceration and how that's affected our country, how poverty comes into play, how the communities most affected by these systems are black and brown people. Um, and I just really would love for people to just educate themselves more on these issues because I, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. And, and it's funny because I used to be a Jehovah's Witness and I feel like I would preach all the time when I was a little kid about the end of the world and Jehovah this and Jehovah that. And now I feel like I'm preaching, but in another way. And, and, and just like back then, people weren't listening to me. I feel like people sometimes are not receptive to these conversations either. And so there's only so much that we can do until people um, hold themselves accountable to what they should start understanding. There's some talk about whether or not we're in a kind of unique or a rare moment in history where people are willing to 
reckoned with certain things that that they you know generally ignore um and this crazy year of 2020 has kind of played an important part in bringing certain issues obviously racial justice top of the line but as well as public health uh, our incredible laziness as democratic uh, citizens small d um talking about history though i kind of am, am a little bit worried because it's like the more you go back in american history it's like it's never been good for immigration <laughs> you know we all remember well we remember reading about you know the chinese exclusion act um all, all kinds of of horrible things the ins preceding ice was not exactly um you know a model agency either um are there other countries that we can look to that handle migration better and and might serve as a model for us to maybe take certain ideas from and import them here to use as a new system do you know of any um, i wouldn't say i'm an expert on that kind of conversation yet eventually i'm going to make my way into a graduate program and that's going to be some of the research that i want to do after i finish this jd but I mean, and, and this is also just something that, I, that I've also looked into as well. Like you check out like Canada's um, USCIS, right? Like oh, their, their, their own interpretation of what our USCIS looks like. And you realize that it's so much more chill than, than us. Like we have no chill. And, and, and like they, um, they don't find you that much. Like just recently there was like a... a a policy that thankfully a judge um, blocked, but Trump wanted children who had the juvenile visas and were then applying to LPR to pay a $1,500 fine for the application. $1,500. These are families that are, 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 that are poor. These are families that are struggling, especially during a pandemic. And most likely they did not get a stimulus package. And you want to go and charge them $1,500 on top of that? Like, what 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 do you it just doesn't make sense it doesn't add up and it's just a slap on the face at the end of the day like he might as well just fucking like just spit at us because that's basically what's going on right now and um and you think about what other countries are doing like just canada our neighbor you know and you realize that they're actually getting a stimulus package people are actually um there's actually language that's that's cohesive that, that people can understand and and, 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 and and navigate as they're trying to apply for like a fiance visa or, or I don't know what, you know what I mean? But like these are things that that other countries are doing and it works for them. And we're supposed to be the country that was built uh, with immigrants. And we pride ourselves in that. And I personally think that France would just take that Statue of Liberty away because that is it's all a show at this point. I don't think that Lady Liberty needs to be out here watching all this bullshit. Uh, we have a, a question from an audience member, and this has to do with uh, uh, the new interim ICE director, Tony Pham, who actually is a refugee, a Vietnamese refugee himself, and yeah. talks very openly about, you know, um, coming to America after the fall of Saigon, and there's this, it, it, it creates such a complex situation, a lot of misunderstanding, and I think, you know, division within immigration or immigrant groups, you know, who's the good immigrant, who's the bad immigrant, you come to this country so long as it's the legal pathway, there's a trip up there, you know, what's, what's the legal pathway? Because when you 
look back at the historic policies. I mean, if there is no policy or an open legal way for you to, to get here, then automatically you're looked at as a criminal. Uh, would love to hear your thoughts. The question is really what your, what your thoughts are about Tony Pham uh, being the interim ICE director here and, you know, what, what is happening there? What are we supposed to gather from this kind of uh, appointment? You know, I, I, I don't know enough about Tony right now to, to really make a comment about him. Um, I will speak, though, on that narrative that like, oh, you need to just come here the right way. And all that, all that misconstrued, misunderstanding, it's, it's really what it is that they're gaslighting us, basically. That's all it really is um, when it comes down to it. And to just to break it down to you, um, people who are currently in detention, um, who may not qualify for a bond, which means that they can be released if they pay like, like $1,200 going up, because it can increase for sure. Um, if they entered at the port of entry and presented themselves and said, I fear for my life, da, 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 they have a lesser chance of being released through a bond application than with someone who entered without inspection. And someone who enters without an inspection basically means that they crossed the wall or did something. You know what I mean? Like they, 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 there was a violation of some sort, and they, um, but they qualify for a bond to be released into the U.S. And this is all happening within a pandemic. And so when, when, when we're working, when I was working with some of my clients, I was just thinking, this is so counterintuitive. Like, it doesn't make sense. It's a catch-22 and people are just being tricked. It's a trap. It's basically what it is. There's no clarification. There, there, it, there's, so many, there's so many myths that need to be debunked. There's so many people that are, that are in, living in fear right now, especially during this pandemic. And you know, it's almost like, do I want to take my chances? Do I want to like enter without inspection and then figure out if I do qualify for a bond or will I be locked up and detained and most likely, um, most likely contract COVID-19? So those are a lot of serious questions that people are asking themselves right now in Tijuana. And, and we should point out for anyone who's been watching this and is wondering, you're wearing a mask because you are actually an, on campus there in New Orleans. Yes, I, I, I'm on campus right now at my law school, and so they, they have a very good um, uh, protocol in terms of, like, wearing a mask if you're going to be on campus. Um, a lot, my, the majority of my classes are on Zoom right now, so I like to call it Zoom School of Law, but it's basically, like, I get to be here in the library and study, and thankfully, it's, it's been pretty empty, and so, you know, it's just a matter of being safe and, and careful. Um, I, I just have a question, and this is really probably a very basic question that, that most people maybe already know. But so while people are waiting, say in Tijuana, I'm not pronouncing that correctly, Tijuana. Mm -hmm. um, what what do what do they do with their? You know, are their movements restricted? Are they able to are they able to find work? Or, I mean, are are they just sitting there every day trying to get through this this process? I mean, what are their daily lives like? It really just depends on the people. Um... I'm not going to go into too much details about these things either because these are, are, are facts that could also um, jeopardize people's applications. And so that's one thing that I always try to be mindful of as I'm writing articles or as I'm speaking with platforms about some of this stuff. Um, not that I want to be um, secretive or, or withhold information, but I just really want to be mindful of the fact that people's um, lives are at stake. And I don't, I don't want to run the risk of like... Um, jeopardizing anyone's chances of, 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 um, of any form of status, you know? And so 
Uh, it's just, and I, and I want to say that also as, as, as a overall like um, message for, to people that want to volunteer. Cause I see a lot of white people that go to, to Tijuana and they want to volunteer and, and help. And that's amazing because you, you most likely have the time and the resources to do that. And I applaud you on that, but don't go around taking selfies with people. Don't go around being this white savior, this problem, this problematic white savior. And I say this to Brown people too, because we do this just as, just the same, you know, we have to be mindful of, of, of what we're doing when we're out there and, and whose privacy we need to protect because these are people that are fighting for their case, literally fighting to, to advocate for themselves. And so, um, just to be, just to, um, be prudent, you know, as we wind down on time, uh, you know, a couple of questions that I have for you really centers around the election. Um, like I said before, whoever wins, we're going to have to work with that president and his administration with, uh, in regards to immigration. I mean, at, at this point, there's a whole lot of work to be done. Um, do you have thoughts or do you know of the advocates and adv- activists who are working, you know, out there in the fields, like the organizations that you had mentioned, if there is a plan, if President Trump wins or is reelected, and if there is a different plan, if Joe Biden wins? Mm, I can't really speak on that because I'm not in those organizations right now, like in the midst of it, like internally, you know? And so I, I wouldn't know what their game plan is right now because every organization strategy is different. Yeah, 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 I would imagine. I, I think you're right. And going back to, you know, if the priority, I think, for many advocates, especially those who want to see ICE abolished, if that debt would continue. Because um, the second half of that question is, I mean, you had mentioned defund the police. And uh, the movement is picking up. And I mean, you've, you're starting to see cities really think about, you know, reallocating uh, resources, you know, and not necessarily all to law enforcement. Um, do you think that the same can be said for the movement to abolish ICE? Yes, definitely. And I, and I, and I give an example about the facility in Santa Ana, which is like in Orange County. Um, that, that happened. And that all happened through community organizing with organizations like um, Familia and um, Translatina Coalition. So I, I definitely want people who are watching this to, to make donations to those organizations. Um, Translatina Coalition is a great organization. They are um, led by trans women and translatina migrants, and they're at the forefront in policy work at, on the local level. And so I, I encourage you to do some research to fund these organizations that are doing the work, that are doing the groundwork. Familia is another organization. Um, uh, who, am I, who else am I? thinking of um, Casa Ruby. Um, actually, the organization called Casa Ruby that's based out in D.C., we just interviewed her with the body a few a few weeks ago, um, uh, Ruby Corrado, who is the executive director. She's Salvadoran. She, she's a migrant. She's trans. And she came to D.C. about 20 years ago and now has a nonprofit that works with LGBT homeless youth in the D.C. area. And she just recently created a house for LGBT migrants who are, who are coming out of detention so that we have this solid pipeline to assist them and better advocate for them as they, as they transition into the United States. And so I imagine that organization is going to need a lot of, of support. So if you can make a donation to Casa Ruby, 
in the D.C. area, that would be amazing. Um, and that's one way that people can advocate because many times people are like, what can I do? I want to be out there. And, and I, I just for X, Y and Z reasons, you know, like, you know, you may not be able to. And that's fine. Um, funding. Funding is really, really important. And if you are someone that can donate your time, if you're an attorney, if you are a nurse, if you are a dentist, then donate your time pro bono to organizations that are doing this work at the border. Kind of along that last point and uh, harking back to, you know, with recognition of you not wanting to give away any confidences or put anyone in danger, could you talk about some of the special health concerns uh, regarding LGBTQ migrants and some of the challenges they face um, whether it's, you know, in, in, in the journey to the border or getting across the border, what is, what is special about their situation that people should know about? Um, I guess one thing that I do want to emphasize is that trans women um, are much, many times harassed. Um, unfortunately, this does happen both in detention centers when they're with in the hands of U.S. custody. Like the United States does not have a protocol on how to be humans and, and treat people with respect. Um, I would also say that the police in Tijuana tend to harass some of these trans women. They they entrap them. They lie and say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm arresting you because you, you had drugs on you um, or you're doing sex work. They gaslight them a lot. So there's, and many times they also get sexually assaulted by these people. So that's just kind of one perspective on what, what, what goes on sometimes. And I don't want to say that's always all the time, but if I were to ask someone who's trans and migrant about her interaction with the police in Tijuana and ICE and Border Patrol, she, she probably wouldn't say it was very good. And what about, say, they're successful, they, they're, you know, get, they get documented entry or whatever. Um, do, do they have enough of these organizations, such as the one in D.C. you mentioned, where they can make connections and, and build kind of a base of community? Or are, you know, you're talking about kind of this, this wonderful connections and networks of, of, of your family and, and their their friends and, 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 and neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a bigger challenge for some of the LGBTQ folks? It is. And that's why I think we got to support our local LGBT orgs that are doing this work. Andrea Lint in, in Florida does really great work. Her organization is Adriana's Place. Ana Andrea in Texas has her own house, just like Casa Ruby. Ruby is actually her mentor. So Ana Andrea in Texas, if you Google Ana Andrea, Casa de Ana Andrea in Texas, you'll find resources there. Um, in San Francisco, Ella, which I imagine you all know that organization as well, right? Being in San Francisco, they do great work as well with um, trans migrants. And, um, and I work and I know all of the people in these organizations. They're all my friends and, and they're all incredible people that I'm very blessed to know. And so all it takes is research. People need to like dig up, you know, what organizations are helping and grassroots led organizations led by trans people. Because many times these LGBT organizations don't want to give them jobs, don't want to like promote them and, and make them leaders. They, they, they believe in charity work rather than advocacy, like the Los Angeles LGBT Center, who I work where I work. So I can at least throw shade at them and be like, nope, that's the, they're not really advocating sometimes. I will say though, that there is the trans wellness center in Los Angeles that Mariana is incredible and she is holding down the fort. So no, I don't want to throw so much shade out at, at the Los Angeles LGBT Center, they are getting better. Um, they recently changed their name to LGBT 
Los Angeles LGBT Center. It used to just be the Gay and Lesbian Center. So like it's, it's baby steps, right? People have their blind spots and we are working towards that. But the Trans Wellness Center in Los Angeles is another great organization. Y Mariana es una dulzura. I love her very much. Um, I've had the privilege to know a lot of these organizers over the last few years uh, as I was growing myself. And so, um, yeah, that's that's those are organizations kind of like around the country that people can start um, supporting and donating to. Julie, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program and for sharing uh, your article that was written at thebody.com. I enjoy your articles very much. So if you joined us today, like the work uh, that you've heard that Julie is involved in, you can go to thebody.com. The, the article that we talked about today is uh, it's the title of the program, Immigration as a Public Concern. And so I think, yes, uh, although it wasn't brought up, as John had mentioned in the vice presidential debate last night, it is a topic that will come up again uh, that we need to, to be mindful of. And, and there's a whole lot of work. Um, I'm going to leave it to John for the last words. Well, thank you. Um, thank you for joining us today, uh, Julianne, and uh, we've, we've enjoyed this. Uh, if there's one place you'd like to send someone to, you know, can you share a URL or something where people can get more information about uh, immigrants? You've mentioned a number of different organizations. Is there a great news source? Is there a great, you know, clearinghouse sort of place that you'd like to give people? Your- like, an, like a shout out to an organization, you mean? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I would say the ones that I just mentioned before. Okay. Casa Ruby would be one of them for sure. Casa Ruby has a transmigrant house named um, Bella Evangelista, and that house is named after a Guatemalan transmigrant who died in D.C. in the early 2000s because she didn't have support for housing. And so um, if I were to like ask people to make a donation, I would definitely encourage them to go to Casa Ruby. Very good. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, my co-host, Michelle Miao, here on the Michelle Miao Show. Uh, You can find out more programs we have coming up at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Thank you, everyone. Stay safe and healthy. We'll see you again. Bye.